CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach that takes on each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills to provide creative solutions for their clients. Based right here in Western New York, CTBK is a champion for your business and our community. Additionally, CTBK goes beyond tax and attest services by offering a wide array of consulting and outsourced solutions tailored to meet the unique needs of your business, allowing you to focus on your operational and long-term strategic goals. Whether you're a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, the team at CTBK is determined to help you succeed. Visit ctbk.com or call 716-630-2400, 716-630-2400 to learn how CTBK's one-team approach can work for you. Welcome to Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham. That's Jonah Bronstein. We are your hosts, and we're going to be joined uh, in a little bit by Kevin Snow, local author, formerly of the Buffalo Sabres Communications Department, where he worked in media relations and uh, also uh, at sabres.com as a writer. And uh, he has a book that we're going to talk to him about. It's The Science of Hockey, the Math, Technology, and Data Behind the Sport. Uh, so we're going to talk to Kevin about his book. We're going to talk to him about the Sabres right now. We're going to talk to him about the trade deadline. Uh, he has worked some trade deadlines as an employee, and he has some thoughts, uh, I'm sure, uh, about what the Sabres should do uh, next week at the trade deadline. Uh, Jonah, it's a little smattering of sports going on right now. We're in between the Super Bowl and the Combine, uh, which is next week in Indianapolis. I will be attending that for the Athletic. Uh, we have uh, the Big Four regular seasons winding down, heading towards their conference tournaments. Um, the Sabres, um, and we're going to talk to Kevin Snow about them, uh, obviously, but uh, we were trying to come up with topics um, that would be bigger than the Sabres. Uh, so that way we didn't uh, talk about them too much uh, on this podcast, but this is going to be a Sabres podcast. Um, it was uh, quite a, an event uh, earlier this week when Ryan O'Reilly came to town and, and smoked his old team for a good portion of the game. Sabres show a little life early, uh, uh, late, uh, but uh, their, their early struggles uh, were insurmountable. Um, Jonah, you're out there, you're at the arena a lot. Uh, you're covering these games. Um, what difference did Tuesday night make in regard to the grand scheme of the Sabres vibe as to whether or not this is a playoff team? Are they playoff ready? Uh, should they make a move? Uh, when they had the big stage and uh, a crazy crowd at the arena, a lot of Leafs fans, and they seemed to be totally overwhelmed for a good uh, majority of that game. Yeah, I think mathematically, if you look at it, just one game, and it didn't change their standing position too much, but it felt like a big stomach punch, I think, to what you say, the vibes. Um not just that they lost the game, but they lost. It's the only game the Leafs are playing in Buffalo this year. Uh, Ryan O'Reilly doesn't carry the same baggage coming back into Buffalo that Jack Eichel does, and he's been here a few times with St. Louis. But there were some similar vibes in, in that, you know, Jack Eichel had that hat trick here in Buffalo in November. and had, Sabres had fans wanted Ryan O'Reilly to fail miserably on Tuesday night. They wanted him to forget to take his skate guards off and fall down on the ice repeatedly and take a slap shot uh, in the sternum, uh, you know, all kind, whatever, whatever follies could befall uh, an NHL player. The, uh, the Sabres fans would love to have seen that happen to Ryan O'Reilly. And he scored what two goals in the first less than five minutes, five minutes. Yeah. And he had a hat trick. You know, and he never had a multi-goal game in Buffalo when he played for the Sabres. Right. I All saw your tweet on that. In fact, I think I retweeted. That's amazing. Yeah. And then just having a player score a hat trick on visiting ice and have the fans throwing hats, you know, that doesn't happen all the time. It happens, right. but it doesn't happen all the time. And having it happen now twice now when it was former, you know, Jack Eichel was a former captain. Ryan O'Reilly was not the captain, but was a captain-like figure in Buffalo. To have kind of the ghost of Sabres past come back here and have, 
these memorable career moments, career night for Ryan O'Reilly on visiting ice is a tough pill, I think, for Sabres fans to swallow. I don't know about the organization and the players themselves, because I think many of them weren't here when Ryan O'Reilly played. It is a few seasons and leadership regimes removed from that. But the fans remembered, and it was stinging, I think, that he had that kind of game and gave him that kind of lead and then finished it off with the empty net goal. But the big thing I think that was disappointing for Sabres fans was uh, the team not rising to the occasion. You know, this was the first time in a while that it had that Leafs game atmosphere at, at KeyBank Center because last year, you know, the Canadian fans still couldn't cross the border. The year before that, there were no fans in the stands. Uh, prior to that were some seasons when the Sabres were really bad and it didn't have, you know, any juice to the game. And, and the Sabres had played well against the Leafs in, in different arenas, uh, the outdoor game last year in Hamilton. And I think a lot of people thought this was a game the Sabres were going to win at home. And, uh, you know, if it wasn't the game that put them in the playoffs, it was going to be a bit of a statement that this team is ready to contend for the playoffs and be an equal of the Toronto Maple Leafs, who have been an excellent regular season team, but not so much a good playoff team the last few seasons. And the Sabres, you know, completely laid an egg in the first period. And it continues a trend of being very poor at home. They're three and seven since January 1st at home. They've lost three games in a row at home and given up 18 goals in that game. And it's an opposite of a trend that was developing of the Sabres rising to the occasion on Ryan Miller night or Rick Jenneret night or on some of the big moments that they don't win all the time at home. They were winning when the building was full and it was really uh, an important game for the fan base. And that did not continue. And it's starting to reverse that trend that the Sabres are maybe not up to the big moments. It was, it wasn't, opponent driven but the last game before the break if the Sabres had beaten the Carolina Hurricanes there they would have entered the all-star break in playoff position and there was a big crowd and there was a lot of anticipation for that being an important victory for the Sabres and they had a similar effort where they got down very you know they got down early they were outshot by a huge number in both of these games early it's not just that they're losing it's the way they're losing on home ice that, that is a bit discouraging. Yeah, it's uh, it's an ongoing uh, story. It continues to unfold, and it's what's adding to what I have found all along to be a fascinating Sabre season, even when they do go through their struggles, uh, like they had that long patch uh, earlier in the season. It still is uh, the ups and downs and the growth. You're seeing it, and that's that's part of maturation. It's part of the evolution of a hockey team as uh, they get older and more experienced. Uh, they're going to have these problems that they have to fight their way through. And yes, as a fan, I think you want them to be ready to stand up to these big moments. But when they don't, I think you need to probably take a deep breath and not get too worried about it. Uh, I'm of the belief of uh, a lot of people out there, uh, Chris Baker from uh, uh, at Sabres Prospects on Twitter, um, that uh, the Sabres should continue to grow organically. Don't go for the big move at the trade deadline. Um, but I think that there's a lot of agita out there among Sabres fans who see it being so close that the team is on the verge of the playoff bid uh, that all the misery that they've gone through of not being able to experience postseason hockey for so long uh, that they just want to taste it. Uh, they just want to experience it, even if it's, you know, a five or six game series loss. Hell, maybe they'll even take a sweep, uh, a, 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 a sweep elimination at this point, just to experience a couple of uh, spring hockey games. But I, I think that uh, these games like Tuesday night, while disappointing, uh, aren't reason to change uh, the trajectory of your team or your plan, I guess I should say. Well, in that context, I mean, I don't think it's a good thing if the Sabres lose and fall out of playoff contention because I do think the fan base uh, deserves to have some meaningful hockey and some excitement down the stretch and to keep the team in Well, the I think mix. that's going to happen. They're really going right. to have to kind of fall apart for the games to, to lose meaning because they're going to be well, close or they should be close whether they make it or not. These, these games will, will be meaningful, I, I think. It could go either way because they have a difficult schedule. They have games against other teams in the playoff race that could, you know, really, you know, those are almost four-point swings if you don't win those games. And the other teams can get hot. And they're among seven teams that are competing for two wildcard playoff spots. And yeah. 
Pittsburgh is slowly, I think, pulling away to make it maybe a six-team race for one wildcard playoff spot. And it seems like the Sabres are in the mix when you look at the standings. And if you look the at number the number of teams involved, just a, just a quick point on that, the number of teams involved in that hunt is almost more significant than the number of points needed to get into that barrier. Because uh, over the course of a handful of games, when you have so many teams, uh, you have to have a lot, of, a lot go for you. Uh, because otherwise everything's just going to remain about the same in terms of, you know, where you, where you are in your positioning. And if you look at the sites that project playoff odds uh, and they go up and down with different results, but the Sabres right now, they're about 30% on hockey reference around 30% on money puck around 20% on 538. The athletic has them a bit lower. I think closer to like 10, 12% because they have more historical data in that algorithm. But all of those numbers, if maybe you blend those numbers together to around somewhere around 25%, that means they're much more likely to miss the playoffs than make the playoffs. And it, it, they seem like big numbers because the Sabres haven't been in this position in 12 years since they were a playoff team. So a 30% chance or a 40% chance, I think, where it was before that Leafs game looks like, wow, the Sabres are really in contention. But it's I don't know if they've been – I think they have for certain days of the season, but since the very early days in the season, they haven't been on a playoff Point pace, and they haven't been above 50% in their playoff odds. So all season long, they've been projected as a team that probably was not going to make the playoffs. When they're hot, they get very close to maybe being on that edge. And then when they lose some games, they're much lower to being a team that, that's probably not going to make the playoffs. And some of that's the strength of the Eastern Conference. I think they're going to get somewhere near 90 points, which is a good season, but not good enough. But I think it's a good thing in the sense that it normalizes the expectations a little bit and maybe does not force Kevin Adams to try to make a panic move for the sake of the fans or the sake of perception that we have to make this move to try to make the playoffs. And for the fans and the team itself, let's say this team does make the playoffs. That accelerates a bit of the growth and development and the expectations because then you come into next year and the expectations rise a little bit to, all right, now it's time to win a series in the playoffs and move on. And I think it might be better if this team doesn't make the playoffs and goes into next year as the year that, now it's time to make the playoffs. If they get a little bit too ahead of themselves, there could be some disappointment next year that uh, you know throws off that linear projection. Yeah, I, I think that there are a lot of fans out there that would take that risk. That uh, you know, that's the that would be the natural progression. Of course, uh, the goaltending is going to have to uh, come into into some sort of form you're going to have to be able it's going to have to materialize uh and uh we haven't really seen that yet and upl has shown some and anderson has been effective during the season although not much lately and comry hasn't gotten the uh the, the traction that i think the sabers were hoping when they signed him and this three goaltender situation is has been strange and i'm sure we'll talk to kevin snow about that too um Jonah, uh, let's have actually go to Kevin Snow. Uh, I'm sensing, actually, I'm hearing in the other room, my dog is about to go off. Uh, so let's take a break, uh, and uh, we will talk to Kevin Snow when we come back right after this. CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach to accounting and rise to each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills. CTBK goes above and beyond by lending helping hands in the Buffalo and Niagara communities through volunteer work and donations and has partnered up with Victory Sports for 2022 to help keep kids in the community active. The professionals at CTBK are determined to help individuals and businesses succeed. Whether a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, call CTBK at 716-630-2400 and see what CTBK's one-team approach can do for you. Welcome back to Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. As promised, we're joined by local author and longtime friend, although not a friend of the show until right now, Kevin Snow. He wrote The Science of Hockey, The Math, Technology, and Data Behind the Sport. Jonah and I both have a copy. Oh, we all three have a copy. Three oh, wow, time. look at that. I got a few copies. <laughs> Well, for sale, we can plug that. And uh, but the book's doing well. You're not desperate, but by all means, you should read this book. 
And uh, it is a bit um, loaded with uh, Buffalo perspective here because uh, the forward is written by John Vogel, friend of the show. Another friend of the show. Uh, the blurbs on the back are by John Warrow, friend of the show, and Tim Graham, friend of the show. I've heard of him. And then there's a blurb on the front of the book by Tim Graham, friend of the show. It's a little obnoxious, actually, these blurbs. Well, I, I will say I had nothing to do with the placement. They appreciated the words that you provided for the book and kind of went from there. And I just said, Tim will be happy, so that's all that matters. Keep Tim happy. <laughs> well, I... I'll, I'll reiterate exactly the blurb that is on the front of this book. And it sounded cliche and I thought uh, uh, tried to come up with different ways to word it, but I couldn't. And the blurb is once I picked up the science of hockey, I couldn't stop reading. And that is the type of you know credit that you see on a lot of books. And of course that's what is going to be said or else it wouldn't be on the front or, or anywhere on the cover. Uh, but the elongated version is once I picked up the science of hockey, I couldn't stop reading. Kevin Snow bombards the reader with deep insight, the types of facts you didn't think you needed to know until he asked the questions. Be the smartest hockey fan in your group and win a lot of bar bets with the trove of information found in this book. And that's right. I, I You sent me a review copy and I picked a spot. I, I didn't start at the very beginning. I was like, where, where do I want to start on this? And I actually started with chapter two, which was the rink and is how the rink is put together. And an hour and a half later, I'm like, all right, I got to, I got to go back to the chapter one. And cause I've gone full circle. I've, I finished the whole thing because it's so much stuff in there. And I covered hockey for seven years that I didn't even know that I even was curious about. So I guess a lot of things in the book that I wanted to kind of get across in terms of like you talked about the rink and it was not just the, the, the rink, like, Oh, how the ice is made and things like that. But I talked to a couple of architects from HOK and Populous that confirmed that I think Populous doing the bill stadium, I believe. And, you know, they, they've been doing this forever and just to kind of get their insights on what goes into the building of an arena, not just the ice in itself in terms of the bowl setup and how do they, how do they position seats in the arena and in the building and, um, what's changed over the last 30 years and to things like the, they need to build an arena near a place where there's a satellite uh, available satellite hookups for after the game, especially when you get to the playoffs, you get the satellite trucks, you got these trucks need a clear shot to the, to, to transmit their signals. So it's little things that I would kind of, I heard about, but kind of discovered along the way. And um, really I wanted to kind of not just reiterate this, but a lot of the same things that people heard, you know, you, you knew the you knew the puck is made of vulcanized rubber. Okay, that's great, but you know where does it come from? What's the history of the puck? And what the company that makes it? What, what are they? What else do they do? And what's the general process of making a puck? So it's really just kind of getting some points, interesting facts and points. And the way I approach the book, it's twelve chapters, and it's really you could read the book. You don't have to read it all the way through. Like, like yourself, you started at two and went backwards, or you worked your way backwards. But you could start at six, seven, eight. It's, it doesn't. You don't necessarily need to read the, the uh, all twelve at once. I hope you will, but it's really twelve chapters of a lot of different information, really surrounding the game, whether it's the equipment, the buildings, um, the draft, the nutrition, training, you name it. We kind of touched on everything. You know, I really enjoyed, as you mentioned, that aspect of the book because when I got my copy, just based on the title, I thought it was going to be very much a book about hockey analytics and the math and things like that. And while there are chapters on that. I thought maybe a whole book about that would get a little tedious. I've read similar type books in, in other sports along those lines. And, and the way you explained, you know, how the puck were made, the history of the puck, the way pucks were developed very early on in the sport and the rinks and the ice and all the different technologies, the physics of skating and shooting the puck and the flex of the sticks really enhanced my knowledge of the game. And probably every game I've covered since, there, there's maybe been a little nugget that I thought back to something that I read in your book. And what I wanted to ask you, because someone like yourself had covered the league for so long and really maybe knew a lot about hockey before you started the book, how much did you learn and how much could maybe somebody who knows a lot about hockey uh, still learn from reading a book like this? Um, I Everybody I talked to, I did more than 40 interviews for the book. Everyone on some level taught me something I didn't know. And because for me, working with the Sabres for 10 years, um, I had access to the building, to places in the building that people would never get to go to, whether that was 
cutting through to leave at night. And I'd walk by the Zamboni entrance. I'd see the guys working on the Zamboni, things like that. And, or watching them set up the, at the start of the year, painting the ice and getting the floor cleaned. And, you know, I, I knew basics of how things were done, but to talk to um, the, the guy who makes the ice in Edmonton, uh, I'm blanking on his name for some reason, but just to hear the process he does of how he spends two or three days cleaning the ice and the solvents he's got to use. And then when you're getting into the ice itself, the temperature he's got to use. And then when there's different events come through the building, whether it's, you know, Disney on ice needs the ice a certain temperature, whereas Edmonton, the Oilers needed a certain temperature because the, the ice will flake or the, they want it softer for things. So things that I saw in, like, on a day-to-day -day basis and, like what, and the, going, even the equipment things. Like I, I talk to equipment reps all the time, and even the players about the stuff they use. But to really dig deep into talking to people, especially for me, a lot's changed. That I left the Sabers in 2015, so that's eight years ago. So a lot's changed in eight years, even just with the technology of sticks and skates, and just how the even the buildings themselves. So yeah, absolutely. I learned from everybody in the book, and I really tried to kind of get those points across to the reader. Some of what you wrote in the ice rink manufacturing chapter was, was floating around my head this morning when I was trying to slip on my driveway outside <laughs> with all the ice that we got here in Buffalo. It's funny. I was, I, I, I too had the same thing and I was out there I'm seeing the, the coating of ice and I'm thinking, wait, an NHL rink is only a little bit thicker than the stuff I got in my, my front walk this morning. Cause you know, growing up as a kid, I always thought the ice was three, four inches thick, if not more. And then you find out that, you know, Edmonton keeps their ice about an inch and a quarter, inch and a half. And you know, that, that ice is that way all year. And when you hear teams talking about, you know, it's bad ice, that it's chewed up, it's slushy. Well, you know, in Buffalo, you get a Bandits game on a Saturday and a Sabres game on Sunday. That ice has been covered by plywood and it's been heated up overnight. And things. So it's the, the terms bad ice, are they're, they're a thing. But, yeah, they, it always blew me away when, when I did learn that. I knew before it was, it was so thin, but to think about it, these guys have to maintain that ice all year long and the abuse that it takes in these buildings, whether it's, you know, 41 games and practices daily and events and things like that. Yeah. I'm surprised ice isn't as beat up, beat up more than it is. In my introduction for Kevin snow, I, I skipped right over uh, how I got to know Kevin and uh, it's how probably most of you who are uh, tuning into this podcast uh, have known Kevin or heard his name. He worked for the Buffalo Sabres from 2005 to 2015, first in public relations and then at uh, sabers.com. So you've seen his name and, uh, he has uh, quite an extensive background uh, with the National Hockey League and particularly with the Sabres. Um, while we're talking about the ice, and I don't want to give away too much of the book, but I think the reason why uh, that chapter, chapter two, was, was my favorite uh, is because we talk a lot about bad ice or in the case of great ice, what's the difference and the science behind it? And I recall having these discussions with you at the Swanee house uh, after a Sabres game, we would get there and on a hockey night in Canada telecast, you see those games out West. And we, I would always say, why does this rink look so vibrant on this telecast? And I know some of it has to do with the hockey night in Canada lighting and things like that, but it looked like it was almost a fantastical uh, rink from what I was just at you know, covering a Sabres game. And then we're watching an Edmonton Oilers game or a Vancouver's connects Vancouver connects game. And the, the uh, just how vibrant everything was and how great the ice looked and the sheen and everything. So anyways, that's my, my windup. We would, we would always talk about why can't this be replicated? And I'm sure, and in your book, you explain why it can't be replicated because you think the science of creating ice, ice is ice. Once you get to 32 degrees, you have ice. But uh, without giving away the book, what's the what's the general uh, response to why you can't have Edmonton ice in Boston or in especially uh, Raleigh, North Carolina? A lot of it. From what the people I spoke with, whether it was the architects or the ice technicians, it comes down to like one of them is the setup of the arena. Where in relation to, you know, if you the the Buffalo Key Bank Center, the if you think back to where the uh, the the delivery doors are, they're right as you come out for the Zamboni entrances. If those doors are opening and closing all day long to maintain a certain temperature in that building is near impossible. Whether it's December, whether it's a playoff game in April or May, it's to maintain that ice is one thing, but 
a lot of the outside influences. And it's really that that comes down to it in Buffalo, but Raleigh, obviously, you know, the, you're dealing with humidity and this the it's more of a year-round thing. And then when I talked to uh, the, the architects, one of the architects, he was involved with uh, building T-Mobile Arena in Vegas, and they're using a new technology where they use these curtains. It's not, it's not an actual curtain, but it's, it's an airflow curtain that keeps the humidity, that keeps the outside air outside and not inside. And they actually, they, they built their rink so the building was facing, so the front door of the building was facing the strip, but the other parts of the building were at the, where the entrances were at the back. So you weren't getting that afternoon sun coming in T-Mobile Arena and potentially heating up the building. You know, and naturally, if you think about Edmonton, it's cold in Edmonton. It's cold in Winnipeg. It's cold in Calgary. So there's a little less of that issue to deal with. In their case, it's more uh, dealing with the inside humidity and keeping the, the humidity low. Remember, if you think back to the, the playoffs, you know, there actually were playoffs in Buffalo, believe it or not. And remember when Larry Quinn brought in those humidifiers and he had them, the, the big tubes he had brought in the arena, they had the, the system was in, they were venting outside. So it's, it's a lot of different factors. Location plays a big, big thing influence into it. But right now, the way buildings are being built, it's easier to plan ahead. Vegas being the big, perfect example of, you know, if you have that, if you have the, the doors facing the sun and you've got deliveries coming all day, you got people come, coming and go, the traffic flow, when the fans start coming in the building, if you've got a position, you know, you, you do things a certain way for the ice. So the, the ice does come into play. And then obviously it's how that ice is maintained on a daily basis. And, you know, I asked uh, uh, Steve Messer, I believe his name in Edmonton, and he said, there's no, there's no real guidelines from the league. There are some guidelines, but how he does it is probably different from how it's done in Buffalo or Toronto. Or Calgary, he's just—he told me he floods the ice pretty much hourly on a game day, and the way he described it was saying, uh, you know, if you leave an ice, if you leave the ice for more than a couple hours, think about the ice—an ice cube in your in your freezer. You leave it for a few days, it kind of shrivels up. Same thing with ice; it gets shriveled, becomes more brittle. So he constantly floods the ice to kind of keep the water, the flow of water on it. And so over time, it's, you're not just chipping away at it. So you see those games when the referees are out there repairing the ice. He wants to avoid things like that. Do you have any insight to why uh, KeyBank Center is so cold? Because I always assumed it was just because it's a hockey arena, but I've heard from people that travel more than I do that it's one of the colder buildings in the NHL. I I don't have the exact answer. I know it got colder over the years. When I was in PR, obviously you guys were for the press box. I sat with you guys in that same area. And the first few years it was not that cold there. And it got to the point where you needed a jacket to sit up there. You still do now. Whereas then you'd go, I've, I've been in Edmonton and Winnipeg in the middle of winter and not been as cold as I've been in Buffalo. I think a lot of it is to kind of just maintain. It it's, goes back somewhat to the ice, not 100%, but it's it, the problem with Buffalo is it's an older building. It's one of the oldest buildings in the league now. And to do any kind of modifications to bring different equipment in, it's, it's difficult. And you know, one of the architects I talked to is, one of the hot topics in Buffalo, remember, was pre-pandemic, I believe. The Sabres had that thing where they were they did that survey and they were gonna they were gonna talk about uh, starting to do renovations on the arena. And I asked one of the architects, you know, is it possible that Buffalo could do renovations? And he said, yeah, it's possible. But the problem is, once you start digging around that arena and you want to start ripping stuff out, and you the, the things you could find along the way are potentially more hazardous than what thing was. With fans want to, they want to paint the concourse. They want to open up party areas and remove seats and things like that. You start cutting parts of that building up, and you kind of eliminate things. You that what is being done on a daily basis now, which I think is going to be a problem going forward. Because I don't see a new building being built in Buffalo anytime soon. So it's if, if people want things fixed in that building, I don't know if it's going to happen. Well, there is a footprint uh, not too far away. All the development that's happened down there at Canal Side, uh, where the odd existed, still is vacant. I guess they could uh, put it right there and uh, have some yep. old school uh, aspect to it. Uh, but again, uh, the appetite uh, for Western New York, uh, Erie County, for the state of New York, uh, to help foot the bill for a new arena right after a, a stadium was built in Orchard Park might be a, a tough sell. Um, Kevin Snow, he's the author of The Science of Hockey, the Math, Technology, and Data Behind the Sport. Uh, it's 200 uh, incredibly uh, 
entertaining pages. You breeze right through it. Uh, did you have a favorite chapter of the 12? Um, I enjoyed talking to the architects, getting to know more about the arenas. Uh, the chapter about uh, training and nutrition, where I spoke with Gary Roberts, former NHL Gary Roberts, who now runs the training center up in Toronto, the High Performance Center. And I also spoke to Lisa McDowell, who's the uh, Detroit Red, Red Wings uh, team fitness expert, nutritionist. Learned a lot there in terms of just what you, you know, a high performance athlete, what what they put in their bodies and what they go through. But to hear these people talking about the, the, the minute details that teams are going through in terms of teaching rookies how to cook food and like what types of food to put in their bodies to fuel them for the season. And it's just kind of like, you know, you, you think back to, you know, you, you guys be in the locker room after a game and what do you smell when you go downstairs after the game in Buffalo? Wings. And you know, the teams wanted the wings in. These people don't want wings in the locker room anymore. They don't want beer in the locker room anymore. They want people drinking chamomile tea and eating blueberries as they walk out of an arena as opposed to slamming down six wings and going home and drinking two beers or something. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a bit, it is a business. Are you lie, saying the NHL is woke? I'm not going to use that word. I refuse to use that word. <laughs> not big news. Um, yeah, but it just to learn the, the more of the details and terms of things like that. But I also, I, I really enjoyed writing the chapter on the draft because I've kind of always been, I wouldn't say obsessed with the draft, but I've had a little, real fascination with the draft process. And just it's one of those topics that you could talk, talk about for days in terms of, of draft busts and the, looking back, can you re, redraft the 2010 draft and see where guys go? And But to talk to this couple of former GM and, a sports net analyst in terms of what teams are doing now to prepare for the draft, whether it's bringing in a psychiatrist to watch the zoom meetings and sit in on any player interviews and, you know, the, the analytics of what goes into what are teams doing to look at players and project how the draft is going to go and looking at the player's physical history and saying, okay, what are his parents tall? Cause if he's only five ten now, is he going to become six two by the time we draft him? Things like that. Really. And then to get into the, really dig into the numbers of the draft whereas not just the science part of it but the, the draft history and you know why why aren't goaltenders drafted higher than they are why aren't more goaltenders taken in the first two rounds because the position's so important to the game yet goalies but three goalies have gone number one overall and just really kind of really breaking down that in terms of that and you know looking back at the one player I talked about in the book was kale McCarr he was taken fourth overall by Colorado that year you redraft that draft, he goes number one. So it's, it's just a lot of the term crapshoot came up with a lot of people I talked to, but I just, I've always found the draft fascinating in terms of the, the sheer numbers and the history of it. Kevin, is there a topic you wanted to get to and, and couldn't because of whether it be time or did you have constraints on how many pages or maybe you couldn't get the interview that you wanted to get? I wanted to do, there was a couple uh, people I wanted to speak to at the league. I wanted to dig into uh, the schedule. I wanted to really learn more about how the schedule is made. You always hear about well, that's the a great topic. Matrix, the schedule matrix and what goes into the schedule. And, um, I I made a, a request to the league for that. And also I wanted to tie into the rink aspect. I wanted to find out more about the outdoor games and what they do with the ice and how, the, how they, they manufacture the ice and how they prepare it and monitor it for bad weather, things like that, and how they can plan for a warm weather game, whether it's Los Angeles or when they play it in uh, – uh, geez, I forget where it was a couple of years ago. But surprisingly enough, as much as I wanted this book to just be a fun book and numbers, the league didn't want to be involved. They basically, I got a, I sent a request in and I got a, a letter back saying, thanks, but we will be involved. But they wanted some control over the book. They wanted, they wanted to veto any interviews that they didn't deem appropriate and I knew that was going to be a, a non-starter because one of the people I'd already spoken with was Chris Nowinski, the concussion expert. And I knew that was not going to fly with the NHL. So I, you know, talked to the editors and said, you know, here's what I want to talk to these people, but here's where we're at. And they kind of let, they let me run with it. And I said, no, I can, I can go without it. Cause I, I didn't want any kind of control dropped on the book at all. You could do a chapter on the NHL trying to control things. I could. And how they uh, how they will uh, what lengths they will go to to even provide information. It's a quid pro quo. We'll give you some information, 
but uh, you uh, you have to ignore information you get from people we don't like. It was I just found it very strange because you know my history. I was sending requests to people that I know and people I work with in the league in the past, and I figured when I started the book, I figured one of the things I was gonna was gonna make it easier was my connection to the league and the people, whether it's PR people, things like that. Some people were fantastic. Uh, team PR reps would get back to me, get to connect me right away. But um, between that, between the leagues, at basically snubbing the request, um, I had a, another skills instructor who was very well known. He, I wanted to get him involved in the book. He wanted to see the list of interviews I'd done for the book because he wanted to make sure nobody in the book was going to sully his reputation. So he, and when I said no, I said no. Great, thanks for coming. So it didn't involve him. So could he? There was a few roadblocks came up, unexpected ones. But like I said, for the most, I talked to over forty people, and it was everyone was great. And you know, getting interviews was tougher than I expected in some cases, but I think it turned out well. Kevin, having covered and been around the Sabers through different eras, um, how plugged in are you with the team now? And maybe what are your thoughts on the group they have, the season they're having, and where this franchise is going? I'm. I wouldn't say plugged in, but I'm more engaged in following the team this year than I have in probably three or four years, five years, just in um, a lot of things. I just, I found that team unwatchable for a few years. Uh, there was no personality on that team at all. There, it seemed like there was an endless cycle of waiver pickups and guys that were just brought in to fill holes. And, you know, I feel bad for some of the, like, I was part of that. When I left that team, that's kind of when the cycle started when that, the, the tank here in 15 and it kind of just rolled on for a few years. And there was no, like, even when they got Eichel, there was the excitement initially of Eichel, but then it seemed like there was a constant drama. What was he happy? And then, you know, you hear things about him and Reinhardt and just, they, they're just the body language in general. It's probably a bad term to use, but just watching those games, I just did not feel, I didn't want to give up two or three hours of my time to watch that team for a while. And just, you know, they'd play, I, some days I wouldn't even know they were playing until 7 o'clock at night. I'd be flipping channels. Oh, Sabres play tonight. I I didn't go to a game for probably two or three years. So like this year, I think I've been five, six times. I'm going three or four more times. Granted, one of them is to go see Connor McDavid, but I'm going to watch the Sabres now. I'm not going because the visiting team's in town, and I'm going to see just random players. It's I want to go and see Tage Thompson. I want to go see Dylan Cousins and uh, Owen Power, Rasmus Dahlin. It's, I, I don't think they're I, they're not a playoff team this year in my mind. I think they're getting close, but I still think they're a couple pieces away. And that you know Kevin Adams has got got him on the right course. I was I think Kevin's a great guy, but I was very skeptical when they brought him in as a, a first time GM. And it didn't have the track record of having gone through the league, and you wondered how he was going to make a trade. What he's what kind of how he was going to go about the signings. You wondered how much involvement. Uh, ownership had in terms of how they were going to sign and what were they going to let them sign people. So I was skeptical of kind of moving all my chips in saying, okay, I will follow this team now. So as time has gone on for various reasons, I've kind of watched them a little more. I know they played a night in Tampa, which I wouldn't have even probably cared about that two years ago, three years ago. So it's, I think they're on the right path, but this, I don't think they're a playoff team this year. I think there's still a few pieces that have to be fixed, but they're definitely more enjoyable, and the personality of this team shows through in a lot of ways. It reminds me of the 05-06 team. I know it's cliche. Everyone says it now, but it's the young guys who are growing up together. I The one thing that drives me crazy is I hate the narrative of they want to get guys who want to be here. Well, yeah, if you're going to sign a 22-year-old to a three-year entry-level contract for almost a million dollars, yeah, he's going to want to be there. He's going to want to play there. Not everybody's Jack Eichel where you're going to Stalk and pout when the team's not good, but I, I want to. I like how this team kind of the, the chemistry they've got in the ice, and they're fun, and they all seem to get along, and it, it it bodes well for the future. I'm not saying I'm a band. I'm getting back in the bandwagon, but it's definitely a lot more fun than it was in years past. Yeah, I said when uh, Kevin Adams was uh, named general manager that given his history and everything that was going on with the team, that it was going to be a miracle if it worked because. Again, you're talking about, uh, you know, the analytics of whether or not Tage Thompson is supposed to be a star. And Matthew Fairburn did a great story on that a couple of weeks back. And it's yeah. like, this doesn't happen. 
I think the same thing with Kevin Adams, a guy with no experience is going to be successful in this job. I think it is a little too soon to say it's worked, but it's getting closer. Uh, it seems to be working. It seems to be uh, on the right path. Uh, let me get your your take, Kevin, on trade deadline coming up here in a few days. Um, your thoughts on how the, the Sabres should handle it. I, the one name I keep hearing that people talk about is uh, Jacob Chikrin, bringing him in from Arizona. And the numbers, the, the, the ask, I believe, from Arizona right now is a first, a first round pick or second round pick, and they want a, a top line, young, a top young prospect. And I'm, I'm not of the belief this team needs another defenseman of that ilk. They've already got Darlene in power. They can work. They're, they're beyond those, those two. They need some work. I don't know if they need a, a top three defense because you're going to run into a, a case in a couple of years. You're going to you're, you're going to pay Darlene pretty soon. You're already paying Samuelson and um, Thompson their money. They're going to they're, they'll start getting their contract. I don't want this team to kind of get too far ahead of themselves where they load up on young, expensive talent. And I think that's where Kevin needs to kind of really kind of focus on terms of plan. That, that's where the analytics department comes in down there. To, Maybe they want Jacob Chickman more than I do. I think this team could use another veteran or a veteran like a, more than a little bit younger than Kyle Oposo, someone that could they could put in the lineup and play a regular shift and be an influence. Like they talk about Craig Anderson being that influence in goal. I I'm of the, of the belief I don't think they need three goaltenders. I don't see the point of keeping Craig Anderson around to play one game a week if that. I they I thought they signed Tomry to play to carry the bulk of the, of the work and maybe. See if Lukanen works out, but you know Lukanen got hot for a while and it's kind of thrown them, thrown their plan out of whack. And now I'm hearing that the players convinced Kevin to keep the three goalies around, which that's when I start to wonder. Okay, if that's if Kevin's taking the advice of the players, I want him to I want him to do what's best for the team. And if that means getting that third goalie off the roster and bringing somebody else in who can play top six, be in the top nine, not necessarily the top six, because their top nine is pretty, their top six is pretty good right now in terms of forward depth, but. They, they do need to bring something in, and I do kind of agree with, with the talk that you want to reward this group a little bit for being as successful as they've been so far. And they, you know, I'm not, there's the, well, they have five or six games in hand on the teams ahead of them in the playoff race. There's still a chance they could get close. And if there's somebody out there that's not going to cost you a lot, and if you want to give up, if you want to throw in a Casey Middle stat into a trade, if you want to get better that way, I'm all for it. Because, you know, there's some guys that I just think, a little more valuable and this team needs to when i was thinking about it yesterday they need to make that rare for grad trade right now they need to get that get that guy who's not not on someone's radar <laughs> no shit and, what team doesn't yeah it's, you need to you need to get that guy who's not on someone's radar but you you have pegged him as the guy who you think can break out like i look at a guy like and it's not going to happen because he's in ottawa but alex to in ottawa i think is a guy that you could he could be had because i think there's potential there because You've seen him score 30, 40 goals in the past. He's only scored, I think, 15 for Ottawa this year. You know, if you get a guy like that, who all of a sudden in a year or two, he turns into your Tage Thompson in a couple of years. And suddenly you've got it's, it's, these, these are good problems to have down the road. But I think the big the big home run right now is not necessary. But I'd like to see them do something that is kind of off the radar move, or not necessarily the big big uh, trade, bringing in guys and losing again draft capital. I they've got enough picks right now. I think a lot of people are hungry for a move that gets them no doubt into the playoff hunt. I think that's what the fan, the average Sabres fan out there wants, right? I don't yeah, think but I, w I wouldn't expect that. Well, if I could just jump in, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of people are looking at the Sabres as potential buyers and get a defenseman or a certain type of forward that helps their playoff push. But if they slide a little bit out of playoff contention, say they lose these two back-to-back -back games in Florida, I think they might make more sense as sellers. Craig Anderson uh, could be somebody who could be moved to a playoff team to finish his career uh, with a team that actually is making the playoffs. Victor Olofsson, maybe Casey Middlestad, if the Sabres don't see them as long-term solutions in their roles, could be sent off to other playoff teams if the Sabres were a little bit further out of the playoff picture. I've looked at Olsen for a while as a guy I think they could move on because he's very hot and cold. And I think, you know, the one team I think he'd thrive on, it would be Edmonton. You put him all Alongside McDavid, I think he'd be great out there. But yeah, there's Tyson Jones. Uh, there's players like that who they, they serve a purpose now, but they're here for the for the long term. And 
So they've, they've got the ability where they can make some small deals, but I just don't see the need for a home run deal right now. I think that's, that's an off-season thing for this team, I think. Kevin, uh, before we let you go, uh, you were with the Sabres for 10 years, uh, and because it is trade deadline time, do you have any favorite uh, trade deadline stories? Um, no, just th- thinking back, it, it was always such a weird time because, you know, you know this well, the Darcy Regeer era was very locked down. You didn't hear anything. Even the people are, are always surprised when I tell them, like, what, are you, what are you hearing in the office? Nothing. We didn't hear anything. We literally would sit at our desk in PR and I would wait till someone would walk over and say, okay, get the press release, press release ready. We're trading so-and-so, whoever. And then who are we trading them for? Well, I'll tell you in a minute. So they walk back and you couldn't go past a certain point in the office. You were, weren't allowed to venture into the hockey department to kind of give me a heads up. Like, what am I working with here? If I want to do some research to get the, the press release done. And then they'd come down and say, okay, we traded a first round pick for, Dinah Zubris. And it's like, oh, okay, that's your big playoff push. But it's, it was always fascinating to me because even like, I would, you could talk to people there, but trade deadline was such a lockdown, secretive thing. And, you know, compare that to when I left. When I remember the day we, when we got uh, the Bogosian uh, Vander Kane trade with Winnipeg. And somebody walked over to me with a piece of paper and said, here, I was on a website at the time. You can start preparing, get some photos and video. We just got a Vander Kane from Winnipeg. And that might have been the first time ever in my entire time being with the Sabres. It only took 10 years before I was getting advance notice on something because they just were so close to the vest on things. <laughs> it just things change. Things just changed there. Whether, you know, the communication was different and different. It's different now. I, from what I hear, that people know a little more. People, it's a different environment. I, I really like Darcy a lot, but. It was just it was maddening to work with them sometimes. That's one of the great um, prefaces with Darcy Regeer. Nice guy, but there was always, or I, I enjoyed him, but you know, smart guy, but you know, there was always there's always a big, a big but uh, when it came to uh, Darcy Regeer. I, um, I like Darcy a lot, and like away from the rink sometimes, I would I could. Talk, especially when I travel with them, I would talk to them whether it was on the bus or a morning skate in the locker room hallway. I would talk to him a little bit. I always wanted to ask him more because he's a, such an incredibly smart guy. He's been around the hockey for so long. I just wanted to know more about him. But he had that little wall that would kind of go up every so often where you kind of you'd get so far, then you'd stop. Yeah, you knew you had to stop because you know, the boundaries were coming up. But you know. Great guy. It's, I, I'd love to know why he just kind of vanished out of hockey. Yeah, he doesn't return my calls, my texts, my emails. I've tried to get him for a few stories. Uh, you know, we didn't have a great relationship. We weren't combative either, but we were just never uh, – we never had a relationship like I've had with other general managers that I've covered, like Buddy Nix, uh, like Brandon Bean. Um, you know, I'm trying to think, hell, Bill Parcells, uh, when I was, he wasn't a GM, but he was the VP of football operations. You know, there were guys who I could actually have a conversation with and it didn't even have to do with football. It could just be, you know, asking about families or whatever, and they'd have a natural curiosity. And the thing with Darcy that always bothered me and it always, um, I think it's something I could never get over in terms of a problem that I had with him as a human being is he always pretended like he didn't see you, uh, at least with me. And I don't think it was just me either, but it was if you were walking down the hall, he would look the other way or he would pretend like he was doing something else. And I was like, we know people like that. That's that's not a common, an uncommon trait yeah. that some people have. Um, but it's almost like you had to go out of your way to say hello. And then he'd pretend like he had just seen you. Oh, oh hey, hey, how's, how you doing? Uh, and I was just like, fuck's wrong with you, man. Uh, I was just had that problem. So I always made it a point when I he was always the time. I was just going to say it, it always made him uncomfortable. So I would always make sure to say hello to him because I knew it made him uncomfortable. Hi, Darcy. How are you today? You know, make him actually answer me. Oh, Hey Tim, I'm doing well. You know, how are you? Oh, I'm good, Darcy. Great to see you. Well, there's one time I always think back, I tell people this story is, early on in Twitter, when I first started on Twitter, when I felt the need to tweet too much sometimes, and 
I was in Target one night and I'm in line and there's a woman in front of me with a basket full of stuff and she's or a cart full of stuff. Not one, not one big ticket item in the cart. And she's unloading stuff on the, on the belt, just one after the other. Woman says, okay, that'll be $625. Just a target of random things. I'm thinking, I, what did you just buy? For, I'm trying to figure out what it was. So I tweeted something to the effect of, you know, I just saw a woman spend $625 at Target without a big ticket item to, in, in the lot. So then I'm, next day I'm in the office. I'm walking, coming from the parking lot, and I'd walk to the office and then uh, get to just Dar- meet Darcy halfway. Stops for talk, making small talk. He walks by. As I get to my desk, he stops and turns to me. He says, so "What did that woman have in her car at Target last night?" And I was like, "Wait a second, you follow me on Twitter?" And he just kind of goes, "Maybe," and he walked away. So I spent <laughs> the morning rolling through my followers, trying to figure out which one is he. I, I still to this day don't. He wouldn't tell me who he was, but I just found it fascinating that he just okay. Not only did he follow me on Twitter, he actually read my stupid tweet. That's probably when I started realizing I probably shouldn't tweet my entire life. Darcy had a burner account. Apparently. Fake Darcy. Uh, well, Kevin, this has been fun. Uh, let me plug the book one more time. And there's a lot of words to it. That's why I have to constantly look down at the, uh, I'm going to see if I can read it. Uh, I have the mirror version here on the, uh, on my, on my uh, video, uh, the science of hockey, the math technology and data behind the sport. Kevin Snow, forward by John Vogel, blurb by Tim Graham of The Athletic. And the John. Fine bookstores everywhere. Bar- the, the usual Barnes and Noble, Amazon, place like that. If you're in Buffalo, you can stop by Talking Leaves on Elmwood. They sell it in the store there. So if you, if you need a copy in a hurry, and if you want, if you want an audio version of the book, you can call me and I'll read it to you over the phone. <laughs> Well, there's, there are Barnes and Noble still in existence. Uh, there's one on transit. There's one on Niagara Falls Boulevard. So talking leaves. I mean, maybe you want to support the local uh, bookstore. That's always good. Uh, but if it's uh, more convenient for you to pick up a copy uh, at Barnes and Noble, they have them. Uh, Jonah and I have our copies. And uh, it's been a pleasure, Kevin. Thanks for uh, thanks for making time to come on here and, and talk about the book and and uh, your thoughts on the Sabres. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it, guys. And I mentioned on Twitter a couple weeks ago, Jonah, I think you're doing a hell of a job with Channel 4 and refreshing new voice in the sports media landscape in Buffalo. Thank you. I appreciate that, Kevin. And the tweet. That it, that's true. We don't talk about that enough. Jonah doesn't get enough bouquets thrown at his feet. And I agree with Kevin. I agree with both of you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank, thanks to Kevin. Thanks, Jonah. Thanks uh, to everyone out there for listening slash watching. Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants.